The year is 1970. Growing numbers of people are protesting the war in Vietnam, which so far has claimed the lives of 44,000 Americans. The Black Power movement is on the rise, with the militant Black Panther Party running operations in 68 cities across the country. New York City is slipping into decline as prostitutes, pimps, and drug dealers take over Times Square and parts of Greenwich Village. And that year, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to No Place to Be Somebody, a searing drama about race by Charles Gordon. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. No Place to Be Somebody was the first play by an African-American to win that honor, and the first time that the prize had been given to a play that hadn't previously been produced on Broadway. The big Broadway shows that season were Borstal Boy by Frank McMahon, Child's Play by Robert Morasco, and Indians by Arthur Copit, who went on to write the book for the musical Nine and died earlier this year at the age of 83. All three of those shows were nominated for Tonys. Borstal Boy won the Tony as well as the New York Drama Critics Award. Indians was a runner-up for the Drama Critics Award. Meanwhile, the Outer Critics Circle gave its top prize to Child's Play. No Place to Be Somebody, which opened in a workshop production at the Public Theater and eventually moved on to an off-Broadway commercial run, had earned good notices but got no awards from anyone. Until the Pulitzer. It was Gordon's first play. Born in 1925, Gordon grew up in Elkhart, Indiana, where he adopted his stepfather's surname, Gordon. The E that changed it to Gordon came later. The Gordones were one of the few black families in a largely white neighborhood, but Gordon, a light-skinned man who liked to describe himself as part Indian, part Irish, part French, and part his word, not mine, nigger, was popular in school. Ahead of his time, he regularly used the phrase a person of color when he referred to himself. After a stint in the Air Force and a few years at the Los Angeles State University, where he got a degree in acting, he moved to New York to start his theatrical career. But the parts open to him were mainly servants or menials of some sort, until he got cast in the legendary production of Jean Genet's The Blacks, where his castmates included James Earl Jones, Louis Gossett Jr., Cicely Tyson, and Maya Angelou. But when he wasn't in a play, which was most of the time, Chuck Gordon, as he was known, worked as a waiter and part-time bartender in a bar called Johnny Ramiro's on Manetta Lane in Greenwich Village. It became the inspiration for the setting of No Place to Be Somebody. The play, which Gordon called a black, black comedy, but which is actually a tragedy complete with bodies on the floor at its end, is situated entirely in a down-on-its-heels bar in the village. It's run by a guy named Johnny Williams, a part-time pimp and full-time hustler. Johnny is the front man for some white mafia guys who actually own the place, but he dreams of being his own boss and believes that he can do it once his surrogate father and mentor 
a one-time Harlem kingpin named Sweets Crane, gets out of prison after serving a 10-year sentence. Like the denizens of Harry Hope's saloon and Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh, the regulars in Johnny's bar have dreams, pipe dreams, of their own too. Shanty, the white bartender, fancies himself to be such a good jazz drummer that he'll be invited to join one of the leading black bands of the day. Shanty's black girlfriend, Cora, wants to marry a white man because she believes that will give her security in a white world. Mary Lou, a white college student, sees herself as a selfless activist in the cause of civil rights for blacks. Dee, a white prostitute who works for Johnny, just wants him to love her. And Gabe, a light-skinned actor who wants to be recognized for his talents, is the author's stand-in and the narrator of the play. No Place to Be Somebody is mainly just a collection of character studies. The slim plot centers around Johnny's ill-fated decision to go up against his mafia bosses, even after the returning sweets tries to talk him out of it. There's a whole lot of double-crossing at the end as reality sets in and dreams deflate. Gordon said he rewrote the play six times, but couldn't persuade anyone to produce it. So he took all the money he could raise, including his rent money, and put on a two-day showcase production, hoping that someone would see it, like it, and back a longer run. When no one stepped up, Gordon, his wife, and two kids had to move out of their apartment and into the basement of a church. A friend who was working at the public theater, which had recently moved into the old Astor Library on Lafayette Street that is still its home, asked for a copy of the script and showed it to the public's head, Joe Papp, who gave the go-ahead for a production in the theater's new showcase space, then known as The Other Stage. The production proved so successful that no place moved to the public's main stage, then on to a commercial off-Broadway run, and eventually, after the Pulitzer win, to Broadway. Most critics were wowed by the street poetry of Gordon's dialogue, particularly Gabe's soliloquies about being a black man in America. The New York Times' Walter Kerr declared that Gordon, quote, was the most astonishing new playwright to come along since Edward Albee, end quote. But although he was a friend of Gordon's, the leading black critic of the day, Clayton Riley, who was also a friend of mine, was less impressed with the production. And in a review for the New York Times, Clayton put the blame on Joe Papp, writing, quote, His limited grasp of the milieu involved in ways to be somebody leads Papp to assume that a certain level of obscurity is perfectly acceptable as long as it is offered in a black frame of reference. But as one of Gordon's characters informs us, there's more to being black than meets the eye. End quote. Still, the play, which was filmed for PBS, is regularly produced, often by student actors, and taught in black theater courses. So I reached out to K.B. Sane, the director of the Contemporary Theater Program at Shepherd University, who is a past president of the Black Theater Network, a group dedicated to the exploration and preservation of black theater, and is also the current host of the Black Theater History Podcast, to talk more about it. Hi, KB. Welcome to All the Drama. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. 
I'm really eager to talk with you about No Place to Be Somebody. And I wanted to start by asking you, how did you first encounter the play? I can only imagine that it was uh, work that was mentioned in passing. Uh, I am a member of the Black Theater Network and learned much of my own history of Black theater history and of these texts simply by the ones that my elders would sit in the room and mention. And so when you sit with Woody King and he goes on and on about all the places that were happening in the time and the era, I'm certain that it probably came from really hearing the stories um, that, that our elders told us. Have you ever seen a production? I have not. And I do know that there are productions that continue to happen nationally, uh, but they do seem few and far between. I've never seen it produced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you read the play? Yes. <laughs> I actually read it a few times, and when I knew we were going to speak, uh, it gave me a chance to revisit it, uh, which was really interesting in a contemporary context. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really probably had not read it for a number of years. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what attracted the Pulitzer jury and board to award the prize to this play. It didn't win any other of the big awards that year. It was also playing off-Broadway, which at that mm-hmm. time was uh, unusual. It was the first. Um, what do you think they were seeing, they were hearing, or they were wanting to recognize? That's a great question. I can only imagine that because of a real critical buzz, um, particularly about Gordon's characters, about the dialogue, um, the language that he used, how vivid it was, uh, the number of critical responses that were along the lines of wherever it is playing, go see it, had to have really sparked some interest in, in a bigger way than what would one would normally anticipate. Um, it, in addition to being the first black play to win the Pulitzer and the first off-Broadway play to be awarded that title. It also was the first play ever to leave workshop status at the public and then become a fully-fledged production. And so I can only imagine that just the truly exceptional nature of it would have caught their attention. You know, we're also coming out of the civil rights movement, and he even wrote about what it meant to be a a black playwright and lack of representation on Broadway. And so I would hope that there would have been some interest in uh, responding to the needs of the time. How did the the, the play fit in with other black shows that were being produced at the time? I guess I'm thinking primarily of the Negro Ensemble Company, which Mm -hmm. was recently formed and I think uh correct me but I think uh ceremonies in dark old men dark old men Mm -hmm. uh, Lonnie Elder's play was done around the same time were these themes that other black playwrights were exploring hmm you know there are so many themes that ring true (laughs) you know he was very influenced by Baraka. Uh, I, I know that there was a heavy influence there, and I'm thinking there is great frustration in particularly black male writers' portrayal of 
the treatment by white America in this era. And the representation across races from a black point of view, we were seeing more and more of, particularly interracial casts, uh, which we were seeing coming more out of black theater than we certainly were coming out of our white theater. And it occurs to me that there's this this theme that many of the black writers at the time, that there's they were often compared to uh, O'Neill and <laughs> Albie and these guys because they all were writing about unfulfilled dreams in some ways. And that's a very broad brush, I realize. But, you know, we were seeing images uh, largely of men trapped in circumstance uh, beyond their control and over which they which they had control. And so I, I see you know, a real through line. But also when we look at him in relation to his peers, uh, there is an, a real anger. I mean, there is, it's an angry comedy. The play was also, though, somewhat controversial and and maybe in the response by some black people at the time who felt that the characters were dealing in stereotypes or negative images yeah. uh Johnny's a pimp and yes his prostitutes are there he's waiting for his mentor to get out of jail <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, they uh, I I will say that the particularly the Black Arts Movement and the plays that came out of that really did often walk that fine line between character and caricature. Uh, And I think in some ways there's a desire to turn that on its head. To really engage with that stereotype. Yeah, I think think hitting them head on uh, really opens the door to be able to make that that self-referential commentary. Certainly there were critics, uh, there were vocal critics that were concerned about the stereotypes trafficked there. But Gordon did a really interesting thing in allowing Gabe, his narrator character, to get high at the very beginning of the show that left room uh, to traffic in and out of reality throughout the play itself. And so there is a little bit of permission, I think, given in that way uh, that could be used to counter those arguments. I'm wondering, though, why isn't the play better remembered today? When people are talking about uh, uh, Black drama, it isn't really a part of the conversation. Well, I think that that depends what circles. (laughs) you're in and what conversations you're having. We're at a time right now where there is a lot of attention on forgotten plays, uh, and they aren't necessarily plays that were ever forgotten. They just weren't recognized in a mainstream. And so I want to be very clear that this play has not left the conversation. It's just the lens through which those conversations were seen. Um, Those lenses were held by different people. And I think that that is starting to shift. The other thing is it's a complicated play. It moves in and out of style. Uh, there's uh, Gabriel as a narrator is complicated <laughs> because, you know, he, he is kind of driving the story, but it's Johnny's story. And Johnny has an imaginary figure that comes in and out of his thoughts and, uh, you know, one thing that was noted critically and that I think does make it challenging is that Gabe's last monologue is kind of out of sync with the rest of the play. 
and it's a, it ends in a very soft note. And I almost wonder if some of the, the bite that the, the play has and what would make it relevant today, I wonder if, if that might be part of a reason. Um, it's also a really large cast. So that yeah, does yeah. make it it does make it harder um, from a practical perspective in terms of producing the play. I was wondering if when you either have taught it or talked about it with uh, young people, young actors, young directors, even young playwrights, do they relate to it at all? I have not had that experience yet. I actually just made a little note to alter my own fall black theater <laughs> syllabus to look at including it because I think that young people today would really grab on to Johnny's reaction to the black white relationship. There are a number of lines where he talks about uh, the police not being on their side and that they've never been a help and that the only laws ever made were laws to make things harder for black people. And uh, I, I think our younger generation knows that in a much stronger and more aware way than we ever did. Through social media, they actually have a different grasp on our history than I think that we were afforded. And I look forward to hearing those responses to the lines, particularly the lines about relationships with the police. There's also a young white character who does pick it. Um, and there is a bit of commentary about whose responsibility it is to be protesting on behalf of the black man. And I would imagine that that would also evoke some very strong emotion and reaction from young people today. I was really struck by your calling it an angry comedy because I think that really does uh, sum up the play and the time because there was a lot of anger that was bubbling up with Black Power uh, movement at the time. And perhaps that's part of what the jury was also uh, hearing. I do wonder, though, why you think it was that Gordon didn't write more. I, I, I think he wrote one more play. It didn't do well. And then he sort of retreated. He moved into academia, where I think he was very successful. But to win the Pulitzer for your very first play, to have the honor of being the first black playwright, the first playwright of an off-Broadway show, and then not to write more, what do you think that was about? Well, it took him like six or seven years to write this one. Um, so that may have been part of it. And I know that he was still rewriting, particularly the imaginary character, Machine Dog, um, that that character was continuing to be revised as it went from run to run and was picked up in other locations. He was still kind of tinkering as it went. And so I wonder if some of that is just that he put what he had almost over the course of a decade into this work. And I also think about, and let's say that he wrote, I think it was for the Times, and he talks about the role of being a black playwright and that um, that he wrote because he liked the theater and he wanted to have something to do in it. I mean, as as an actor, he you know was working, but he didn't see the, the types of roles that he wanted to see and the types of stories that he wanted to see. And so I 
I wonder if he saw a change there. I mean, it's in this essay, he, a reason I revisited it this summer is because he calls out Broadway for being the commercial theater that never has had an interest in black theater. And um, I was struck this summer at how little that had changed. But I, I wonder if he saw a changing field because he had contemporaries that were also doing this work or if he had had his say and made his mark and was willing to move on. Well, either way, um, he had his say, (laughs) and it will always uh, be uh, remembered as uh, a Pulitzer Prize winner. So so thank you for uh, talking uh, with us uh, about it and, and, and sharing your thoughts on it. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jen. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Gordon wrote a half dozen more plays, but he was never able to duplicate the success of No Place. The Court, a drama about a corrupt minister, which he directed at the Billie Holiday Theater in Brooklyn in 1976, opened to scathing reviews. The New York Times' Mel Gussow called it self-indulgent, and Gordon was aware of his shortcomings and haunted by his earliest success. Every time I sat down to the typewriter, it sounded like no place, he told one interviewer. In 1987, Texas A&M invited him to teach, and Gordon, who had long favored wearing cowboy hats and boots, became deeply enamored with cowboy culture. He remained there for the rest of his life. When he died from liver cancer in 1995 at the age of 70, His ashes were scattered in a river in the Texas panhandle as part of a traditional Western ceremony that included a riderless horse. But Gordon's true and lasting legacy will always be no place to be somebody. The first work by a black playwright to be honored with the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Thanks for listening to his story. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.